Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Bottle Rocket is the movie we watched this week. Levi, tell us about Bottle Rocket. Bottle Rocket is the story about three friends, but really two friends, and kind of a hang on, mm-hmm. executing a heist. And boy, howdy, I dislike Owen Wilson so much after watching this movie. Why? <laughs> I didn't really like the movie. If you have an Owen Wilson problem, then you're going to have a problem with this run. Oh, I'm fully aware. And it was strange because I actively, after the movie was over, was sitting and mulling it over. And I think I, like, this is retroactively affecting previous watches of Owen Wilson. Hmm. I like him just a little bit less now. Why? I don't know. He's kind of just a, this movie to me, mm-hmm. I think, shows that there is an underlying problem with Wes Anderson that is typically covered by his his scenery and his art direction. Um, and that is that there's rarely a lovable character. Did you like? I like. See, I that's what that's where I'm completely separate from you because I thought that Owen Wilson was incredibly endearing in this movie. No, cannot. What didn't you like about the character? He's. It's not an alpha male because he's too. No, that's what's funny really about him is that execute, but he he controls the yeah. situation. He's got a, and he's just has no empathy. He's unable to understand the emotions of people around him or even read them and it just makes him obnoxious to me hmm. bring me do would huh. you like to should we start over and you can give the upbeat take on i mean Bottle i just Rocket. i i completely disagree i mean i i think that uh i think i love owen wilson's character in this because he's such an idiot like he's an endearing idiot like there's Something about him, he's got some kind of magnetism that draws his friends in. Yes, his friends are bored suburbanites. They, uh, they, one of them has, uh, has diagnosed mental issues. The other one, <laughs> possibly undiagnosed. I mean, they all are a little <laughs> bit of a nutcase. Um, but he has like this kind of loyalty like you know there's this there's the time where he sees uh Luke Wilson's character i think it's is it Alexander is that his name or Anthony yes. Anthony Anthony uh you know walking his dog and he stops his car and he's like and he goes to talk to him and to apologize to him about what happened at the hotel that's I mean, the worst think... apology i've ever seen <laughs> but he got he went out of his way to do it i mean he he went out of his way and he said, you know, there were things that I did that I regret. I mean, he when he apologized, he blamed it all on himself. He didn't blame it on Anthony. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't think he was off-putting. I thought he was fascinating. Because he is, he's not an alpha male, and yet he's trying his hardest to be an alpha male. And he's, you know, putting a lot of effort into the wrong places. But I don't think it makes him an unlikable character. I think that there's an earnestness to him that makes him kind of a lovable character in a, in a way that you know he's just so hapless that uh, you can't help but 
kind of love him out of pity. You know, I, I came to the, I, there was a moment where I smiled and almost forgave him. And that was the last five minutes when he is in prison and it's kind of, he almost seems to be enjoying it there, which is, you know, it's a little bit of a bookend to Luke Wilson (laughs) checking himself into this, uh, institution for yeah. for mental issues but he appears to, he's there of his own recognizance mm-hmm. uh, owen wilson has an odd sort of acceptance that's similar at the end but the mm. way that he that he's trying to he's, okay we're gonna escape and i'm gonna need you to take out the guard towers and it starts for me with this guy does not shut off his stupid little plans and his goofy little and he's not going to be complete until he gets one of these guys and when he when you get that it's a joke that was a moment that i if that had existed more throughout the film but Mm -hmm. to watch an hour and a half to get that glimpse into his i I don't know i had i struggled to follow along and to like him you didn't like him when he rolls up on that tiny little motorcycle no (laughs) i thought that was hilarious of course that's exactly right he's an idiot there's but he's not uh you know he's he does a heroic he has a heroic moment where he goes back knowing that he'll get arrested uh and prevents you know anthony from going back um these are all scenarios that he has created like the yeah the issues in luke wilson's life are are caused entirely by Owen Wilson's proximity, repeated mm, proximity. I don't know about that. I think that he's, he's a, got he's his complicit, certainly, but and he's got his own issues to work with. Absolutely, don't ever try and pick somebody up when they're at their job. That's just a PSA from your <laughs> friends here at Direct. It's a really creeper way to do it. Yeah, I mean he he's a little he's he's definitely got impulse issues. Um I mean, I think that this movie speaks to the idea that of the kind of bored suburban uh, lifestyle. I mean, I, I saw a lot of corollaries between this movie and um, and Edgar Wright's material. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I thought that you know it's definitely rough around the edges, but this is his first movie. I mean, did you watch the short? Yes, I also watched the on? short because the, the short is is just like three scenes from this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely rough around the edges, but this is like all of these guys first attempt at Hollywood. I mean, this is their first attempt at filmmaking. Uh, and you know, they've all made a name. A lot of these people have made a name for themselves. You got Wes Anderson, you got Luke Wilson, you got Owen Wilson in here. Um, uh, Owen Wilson, shining star of Drillbit Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Owen Wilson is Owen Wilson. It's kind of his thing. Yeah, uh, he, and for some, but I'm. That's what I'm saying is he's always acted this way. I mm-hmm. don't know what it is now that has sparked in me just a a mild distaste. And I think you know it'll. Like I said, I think this is an issue that pulls back as Wes Anderson advance as he evolves. This is his Aliens three to me. In uh, that, I've liked everything else Wes Anderson has done. I find it a bit odd, but I typically enjoy it. But this one just set me back so far. Mm. Um, but it's his first. You're right. It's his first one out. He And I really in, 
and it's still worth watching because I enjoyed seeing all of the things that he will refine almost immediately mm-hmm. with his next two movies. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's rough around the edges, but I, I found it pretty endearing. I also found it really entertaining. Like, I would pick this movie over Alien 3 any day of the week because Alien 3 is kind of a long drudgery of strange scenes, and at least the characters in this one are kind of oddballs, and it's a little bit interesting. Uh <laughs> I I I don't I I enjoyed my viewing experience, so I think we had two completely different experiences of this film. That's and that's all right. That's why there's yeah. two of us. That's why this isn't you talking to yourself, Tyler Durden style. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get a Pulp Fiction vibe from this? Just a I, little bit, at least, especially from the short in the opening dialogue of them walking hmm. and talking about something mildly unrelated to the story. Yeah, I I think that there were uh I think that there were some, you know, esque moments, some some <laughs> Tarantino-esque moments, but really what I saw out of this movie were things that uh that I feel like got established moving forward. I mean, this movie reminded me a lot of Swingers, which was um John Favreau's first movie. Uh, you know, that was the movie that introduced the world to Vince Vaughn, which is, it's, I think it's an interesting companion piece to mm-hmm. this movie because, I mean, obviously Vince Vaughn and, uh, and Owen Wilson went on to, you know, be the wedding crashers and mm-hmm. starred some other movies that weren't as good as wedding crashers. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's interesting cause you know, they're, they're similar time periods, uh, similar scenarios where, um, it's kind of an actor and a director getting together and writing their first film together and, and creating this experience together. I think it's a fascinating uh, just snapshot of history. Like the thing that I thought watching this movie is how interesting this would have been to see the year it came out, not knowing at all who Owen Wilson was or Luke Wilson was. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> to see them now, you know, all yeah. over the, it was really, you're right. It was a very interesting send off and it's always impressive mm-hmm. to, to see, I came, I tripped across a picture of Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson coming out of, I think it was the Columbia offices after they got signed, after they got their, uh, funding for the film mm-hmm. and just skipping along. I can't imagine how scary that has got to be undertaking. <laughs> you know, you don't, if that doesn't work, what's your, what's your backup plan? You know, it's interesting. Cause if you watch and you know, anybody can watch the short, it's 13 minutes long. It's on YouTube. You can watch it at any time. Uh, you know, it's really, there's some, it's shot on video. Uh, the cinematography is fairly good. Um, the editing is really choppy, uh, and the way that because the editing is so choppy, the performances get kind of cut off, and you know it's it's rough around the edges, like a student film. Um, so I think that it's interesting though, because basically what they did it looks like is stick with the same script, get somebody who you know a cinematographer who can light the scenes evenly and shoot from multiple angles, mm-hmm. uh, get a good editor who can edit the thing together. Um, and you get to see that's that's another fascinating thing about this movie. If you watch the short and then you watch the full length feature, you get to see what getting into a professional setting can do to an independent filmmaker. Uh, you yeah. watch the Bottle Rocket short, and while it's 
interesting and it's good and it, another very cool little time capsule because it, it also stars Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson. Um, it's not anything that's like mind blowing, especially when you see what you know fourteen year olds are putting on YouTube these days in terms of the <laughs> capabilities that you know people currently have. Yeah, uh, but there is a certain air of quality to it because these are good actors. Um, you know, I, I feel like Owen Wilson really owns this role, and in many ways, it's it's very different from personas that he pursues in the future. You know, in the future. Owen Wilson is kind of this kind of laid back guy who's like, oh, shucks, you know, like he's <laughs> he's not necessarily this intense. This is like one of his most intense roles, I would say. And yeah, I, he, I, I kind of love the way he owns it. He doesn't, I think he always follows this, he always seems to have a lack of focus for most of his characters. I can't think of one that's particularly... You know, he's very childlike in this film. He kind of darts around. His attention shifts very quickly. He's, you know, he's not picking up on any cues from anybody else. He's chasing his own desires. Uh, and that he doesn't, and in that lack of focus, his characters always feel, you know, they're kind of surfing through the world for yeah, it's, lack you know, of a kind better of a, analogy. Kind of aloof, but but he has, he's intense in this one, though. Yeah, he has more energy than he's brought to about any other role. <laughs> I mean, and I kind of loved it. I, I, you know, there's like the scene where, um, you know, he, he, he's a lonely guy and he doesn't have very many friends. He's kind of an off-putting personality in a lot of ways. Yeah. And he's got these kind of two schmucks that he hangs out with. And then in the scene where they're at the hotel and uh, Anthony, you know, is in the swimming pool with... Um, What's her name? Inez. Inez, yeah. Uh, he's in the swimming pool with Inez, and then, you know, <laughs> Luke Wilson's character comes over and is like, hey, guys. Like, <laughs> just kind of, like, sits on the beds and talks to them, like, in the middle of their makeout session. Yeah. Like, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's so it is uncomfortable. But, but this is a guy who's, like, he's got, you know, jealousy. And, you know, when when Anthony and Inez are hanging out on the on the on the you know, railing or on the balcony of the hotel, he's off shooting fireworks in the field and he's like bad. Um, and when they take him out to, for drinking, he gets in a fist fight. <laughs> and I love the way that was shot, by the way, over the shoulder watching him yeah. get his ass kicked. I mean, I just thought he was, I thought he, you know, he's a loser and he's an idiot, but he's kind of a lovable loser to me because he is, you know, the type of guy who, you know, is trying his darndest to be somebody and is so earnest about it. And at the same time alienates everyone around him. And I think that there's something about that, that to me uh, endears him to me because he's trying so hard to be likable and, and, um, and that earnestness has some kind of, uh, I don't know. There's something to admire about being that earnest about being liked <laughs> just, being completely socially inept at the same time yeah it's painful to watch i've had scenarios that were similar i've known mm -hmm. people similar and mm -hmm. had to it's taken a while to unravel from those situations and i don't maybe that's what it's firing up in me is just it hit too close to a, a passive uh situation so i don't know yeah. I, he's not 
it wasn't an awful movie. I think that, you know, for their first movie, the acting was great. Um, it was a really interesting cast to see. Um, I don't know. Did you recognize Robert Musgrave? Do you know him as an actor? Not really. I was surprised to see that he actually <laughs> made the transition from um, the YouTube to the movie because not knowing uh-huh. who was in the movie versus the short, my yeah. assumption was that the only ones that were going to survive the the professional budget was going to be the Wilsons. Yeah. And apparently I'm... that was a conversation that was had. Well, Musgrave's last movie was Drillbit Taylor in 2008. And Idiocracy before that. So. Yeah, so he hasn't made a movie in eight years. So, the, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah, I thought the acting was great. I mean, this 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 launched the careers of three people, this movie. Um, and so that's why, you know, you talk about it and you talk about this movie, you look, talk about Swingers, there's a very similar correlation there. Um you know they're of that same era this is the post tarantino era where you know these kind of young guns are getting their shots and uh and it's still really scrappily done i love you know it's shot on film whereas today anybody in the same situation would be shooting on digital um i i thought i like the characters you you made a you made a uh, pretty broad generalization at the beginning of this podcast, though. You said Wes Anderson doesn't make likable characters. I'm hard pressed to think of. They all have s- such large flaws that hmm. I struggle to find somebody to root for. I'm mostly just hoping they all survive the movie. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, doesn't isn't that kind of rooting for everybody though? Then? <laughs> In the hoping that everybody lives. Yeah, in a sense, um, it, maybe that's the part I struggle with. Is that there? Gen- he has a fantastic ability to write flawed characters, mm-hmm. and in some ways, it is true to life in that not everybody comes out okay. But I, it's it makes some movies difficult to watch. And, you know, I said, I asked Liz, which movie she was going to watch for the Wes Anderson. And she's really only interested in grand Budapest. That's, and I think that's probably what Wes Anderson struggles with at large in terms of movie going audiences. I think his characters are probably what make it difficult for people who are not willing to take that next step into, uh, characters with with issues you know it's very easy especially Hmm. you look at disney's uh reign right now in terms of they've got their hands in so many movies and they all the heroes are likable generally their flaws are very muted um and they make billions of dollars yeah but they but they don't make memorable films yeah no i i I agree captain america the winter soldier. I can't tell you anything that happened in that movie. I mean, I, I like th- I, this is the thing that's interesting to me because we've watched Tarantino's run. Tarantino doesn't have any likable characters in his movies. I mean, yeah. they're the definition of flawed characters. We just got done with Fincher's run. Fincher's in the same boat. I mean, this is a rule that almost works is that bad people are interesting. Um, you know, good people on film aren't, uh, aren't very interesting to watch. 
Um, I mean, I, think- I, I just watched Arrival, and that has plenty of good people in it that's interesting but that's because they're all geniuses but uh but i just think it's interesting because you know you're a big fan of tarantino you're a big fan of fincher and yet you seem to be having a, an issue with the characters in this in wes anderson's run that would mirror the description of characters in both quinn tarantino and fincher's runs it's an interesting point and i think it's something that i hope we can unwrap over the course of this, by the time we get to the end, I would like to understand what it is that makes me struggle with these characters where I mm. don't necessarily struggle with Quentin Tarantino. And maybe, and Fincher too, the, and my, if I were to hazard a hypothesis, I'd say it might have something to do with the, how justice is executed in, in those movies. Um, mm. And I don't, you know, I'm trying to, uh, since this is coming off the top, you know, trying to chase down that thread, I don't know where it leads, but uh, yeah. Wes Anderson tends to, his climaxes are much more emotional hmm. and less uh, bombastic compared to Tarantino and Fincher films. So maybe there's something to that that makes, you know, you have to do the emotional legwork to f- to enjoy the justice that is to cause Wes Anderson, his, there is usually a, uh, a dealing of, uh, you know, there isn't an ending and everybody has their kind of not climax, but, uh, you know, their threads wrap up. I don't think he leaves many things open for characters in terms of the assumptions that you make hmm. about how their endings were achieved. So I don't know. I feel like I'm out in the weeds in this. I kind of I'm enjoying, and that's the part that I. Well, enjoy yeah, I don't. I mean, Wes I don't Anderson. want this he really to be... challenges you as a human being. Where Quentin Tarantino, it's easy to kind of sit back and watch people shoot each other. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's something about these movies that uh, that scratches at you know issues that people have in their own lives. Uh, you know, we we want to get back to the. I mentioned it in the in the prologue cast, but uh, Wes Anderson has this kind of father figure um, motif that happens throughout his movies, and I hadn't remembered that if there was a father figure motif in this one, but there definitely is. I mean, you know, um, these people are, you know, Anthony's at the very least is estranged from his family. <laughs> he goes and sees his sister at school to meet with her, but uh, that's after he's gone and burgled his parents house and presumably stolen his father's dime collection um uh bob's parents are in singapore and he's a super bored but at the same time super rich dude who is you know growing marijuana in his backyard and dealing with his asshole brother (laughs) and then and then james con comes along and james con uh i'm trying to find what his last name was in this because he's mr doc was that no, it was Henry Henry Mr. Henry yes uh yeah he um he comes along and he kind of plays that surrogate father role but then at the same time completely screws everybody over uh yeah, that was re- <laughs> that was uh doubling down on punishing Dignan that was a little bit of odd justice I mean I don't think it was justice I think that it just keeps painting how stupid these guys are 
Like there's something about the the buffoons following the buffoons around, and that's what this movie is: is following three buffoons uh, as they, you know, scramble through this heist plan. I mean, from the beginning, and I think that this is a motif that will also continue: is adults acting like children in uh in Wes Anderson's movies. It's like adults acting like children and children acting like adults. Like Anthony's sister, when we go beat her at the school, she has that thing that I really kind of despise in movies is when children are like the wise ones. <laughs> yeah. Uh and, you know, they talk like old people and they have, you know, this like precociousness to them. That I understand that that is endearing to some viewers, but I kinda hate it because I like it when you know, like like on Stranger Things. Like in Stranger Things, the kids are kids. And they have so much energy and fascination with the world. And, and and when you have a kid who's some kind of stoic, wise man, it's off-putting, right? But mm-hmm. it is a reversal here. Because she is basically the voice of reason in this entire movie. She's only in it for one scene. Um, but she has that kind of uh, authority... And everybody else is just acting like kids. Yeah, she she feels like a lens of reality over the mm-hmm. entire situation. Mm-hmm. The way that she lays down the unhealthy habits um, that a friendship with Dignan carries. <laughs> she, you know, she questions his his mo- uh, Anthony's motives, mm-hmm. and it's nothing that the viewer hasn't already surmised. But it allows you to kind of let go you don't have to to wonder if he's gonna do something stupid she tells you right away yeah he's gonna do something stupid i mean you check out of a mental asylum that looks amazing you have a really great (laughs) uh you have a really great relationship with your doctor uh there's beautiful women all over the campus everybody knows your name you're having a great time (laughs) and you leave that to go start a burglary career uh with your friend um you know, it's there's a lot of questions to be had there about Anthony. Like Anthony is kind of the everyman, but at the same time, he's a complete nut nutcase too. And I don't mean that. I don't mean to demean his mental illness, but he uh, he's just as he's just as crazy as as Digbin. Well, and it makes you wonder to what level yeah. he. You know, he says he was check. He checked in for exhaustion, which, right? Funny enough, I think Kanye checked in for exhaustion today to the yeah. hospital. Um, not to draw any straight lines, but uh, but then I'm not convinced that he necessarily has anything wrong other than being bored. Um, well, he's having an existential crisis. All these guys are like having some kind of quarter life crisis where they're in their early twenties. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Dignan had mentioned that he had 15 years of schooling, which either means that he was held back or it means that he like went to community college. And if you count that plus preschool, that's 15 years. <laughs> um, but they're, you know, they're kind of wallowing. They're, they're aimless. They don't have any purpose in life. And so they're trying to create some kind of notoriety and, I think that's why, like, Dignan is a very interesting character to me because we don't, while we see Anthony's home life and we see Bob's home life, we don't get any semblance of what Dignan's home life is. And you kind of get the idea that he was just some kind of latchkey kid 
who maybe lived with his grandma or something and just never got any attention and you know to be to be excited that you went to prison like that's an accomplishment in your life there's something behind that like what was his child like what was his childhood like like what drives a person to to want to uh be notorious a notorious heist you know guy i don't even know what you call that cat burglar Burglar? yeah i think just regular burglar yeah you just what what drives somebody and then you know it doesn't even end up burgling (laughs) really anything uh he steals a few hundred dollars from the bookstore but in the end i'm sure he went to prison for kidnapping he didn't because he didn't steal anything (laughs) um he did kidnap those people though uh so it's i want to know more about him i think you made a really good reference in the edgar wright yeah uh, absolutely relationship that this the questions of maturity that we're gonna see over and over and over again and in some cases uh you know the arrested development in the real sense of the term where these people just never advance beyond childhood they're still Mm -hmm. searching for whatever drives them forward and that's compelling that's compelling stuff when done right. I mean, it's always yeah. the 90s. I'm sure they were having the question just as much as they're having it now. Like, what makes you an adult? We don't yeah. have any coming of age rituals anymore. So <laughs> I think that really is makes it difficult for some people to know, like, when am I? I still struggle with the day to day. I need an adult <laughs> to make sure that I'm doing the right thing here. <laughs> Well, it, it, I think the 90s were kind of the beginning of that man-child time uh, in mm-hmm. some ways, right? I, I think that, uh, I mean, I was a child in the 90s, so I don't have firsthand knowledge of this, but it, it does seem like, you know, it was during, it was kind of the roaring 90s during the Clinton administration. Um, you had a educated, um, you know, middle class. Uh, the economy was pretty good at that time. Um, and you had kind of a, a bunch of kids who had grown up in the suburbs, uh, whose parents were well-educated, um, and were kind of aimless because they, you know, like Bob in this movie, he doesn't need to be motivated because he's going to the country club for lunch and sitting by the <laughs> pool in the afternoon. Like routine's important, man. Yeah, like he, like I, I love, I actually really love the little montage that they do when they decide that they're gonna get their shit together, they're gonna uh, be busy. Um, you know, they're trying to give themselves purpose, even if that purpose is having a paper route, uh, or or roofing, or uh, or doing valet parking. Um, That's the thing; they got three jobs. They're actually making yeah. money. If it wasn't for the oldest Wilson, yeah, I think he's the oldest, he uh, taking Bob's money. Well, he also um, took his rap. I mean, <laughs> the fact that he went, uh, you know, he has legal fees because his brother was growing weed in the backyard. Um, they should probably pay him back. There's, there's, there's that's, that's fair, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah. But, you know, it. it's funny. It's, I always enjoyed this storyline. Mm-hmm the crime doesn't pay and somebody finds actual success doing something else. And then for some stupid reason, they go back yeah. anyways. Well, because they're stupid, 
because they're stupid. These guys are idiots. Like I think there's there's something kind of endearing about idiots. I don't know. Well, it's Shakespearean. I mean, the, yeah. the great comedic relief was generally always somebody pretty stupid. Exactly. This is the, this is Dogberry. Um <laughs> and and totally, like I feel like there's I feel like that a movie like this projects forward into Edgar Wright. Because uh, Edgar Wright, you know, th- talks about a lot of these same issues, and while he would have shot the heist very differently, I felt like even like this, there were like, you know, those close-up shots. Um, we see kind of the beginning of those close-up shots that Wes Anderson becomes so famous for. Yeah. Uh, but the way that they were implemented in this movie was very reminiscent of of Edgar Wright. Uh, you know, when they're opening up the drawer and there's a close-up of the of the dimes and then they go to another close-up of the dimes it's even closer they cut to a second close-up of the dimes so i i got a lot of edgar wright vibes from this movie i also got a lot of napoleon dynamite vibes from this movie yeah do you like napoleon dynamite napoleon dynamite's entertaining okay because napoleon dynamite's also a movie about idiots it doesn't have a happy ending yeah i didn't say it was my favorite movie (laughs) i mean just find it mildly entertaining well i i i actually think that um oh here we go well i i yes. love i love napoleon dynamite i think that napoleon dynamite is a remarkable film and mm-hmm. unfortunately its saturation into the cultural zeitgeist i think diminishes it in some ways but i think on the face of it that movie is remarkable and it i remember be- i remember going into the theater and watching that like when nobody was talking about it at all <laughs> uh and the only reason i watched it is because it was produced by mtv films and so MTV was running commercials for it. And I was like, this thing looks super weird. I want to go watch this. And I went to the theater. It was in San Diego. I watched it. And there were probably like six other people in the theater. And then two weeks later, it becomes like the biggest movie in the world. Yeah, uh, it it hit hard when it finally came down. And I think when time has passed more, it'll come back as an odd showpiece of a generation. Yeah. You know, you get those every, you know, things like The Breakfast Club, like American Graffiti. Like, just every couple years, somebody makes a movie that does a pretty good job of capturing kind of how it felt, how it feels. Not necessarily whether or not it's true to life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that movie captured something unique. Um, And that's, I think... While there are those similar vibes between, uh, especially Bottle Rocket, I think that Wes Anderson mm-hmm. movies find such a weird way of sitting just out of time. Even this movie, yeah, uh, you know, the lack of cell phones should give it away in terms <laughs> of heist. But I don't know that I've ever seen a cell phone in any Wes Anderson movie. So. Well, there's also a severe lack of uh, surveillance cameras. Yeah, like the fact that the, none of these guys cover their faces when they go and they uh, do any of these heists is pretty hilarious. I'll um, give it to them. They have an appreciation for craft before that became like a marketable thing it, in mm. the film. Like Wes Anderson, I think, appreciates craft and whether it's right. the craft of burglary. So they're manually <laughs> surveying, you know, they hand yeah. write their plans. They always there's no computer. A lot of heist films now, you have to have a computer guy doing some computer thing that usually is stupid and not real. Uh, And Wes Anderson just skips that and goes straight to the old-fashioned manual 
way of talking your way in or rolling your yeah. way in or um, and, and casing the joint and you know and now we have people uh, leave. it's not ron swanson that's his name in the show but uh what's that big burly guy's he makes his own canoes oh the, you mean the guy who plays ron swanson yeah nick offerman nick offerman you know is totally the epitome of a wes anderson character in real life hmm so um I think it's just funny that he was doing this in the 90s, and we probably didn't really have that movement start until, I'd say, 2008, 2010? Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, there's always been craftspeople. Uh, you know, it's I, I, there are small things in here that you know keep on reflecting that idea that these are children trapped in adult bodies. Like, you know, when they're riding the bus home from the mental institution... Uh, Owen Wilson has written his seventy. Is it a seventy-five year plan or something yeah. like that? He's written it in those using those long, skinny Crayola markers. That I mean, I haven't seen those markers in forever, but I remember them from when I was a kid. They were like skinny felt tip Crayola markers, mm-hmm. and the fact that he's using a Crayola marker uh, in a notebook to write out a seventy-five year plan. There's something endearing about that but there's something cr- very crafty about that as well um, yeah it's and it's rem it like you said it's childlike how many adults use l- rule lined notebooks that are that right. a- everybody uses like moleskins and stuff if any you know there's <laughs> we're a little more compact and they hold together you know for the life of the notebook but he's using a yeah. notebook that falls apart after three minutes and a little bit of water gets on it yeah exactly like i there's something that I really like about the lovable loser nature of this. I mean, it's, somebody posted on Reddit this week this David Blaine magic trick that's like, there's like, this is the best David Blaine magic trick. And the reason why it's the best David Blaine magic trip is, trick is because of the kid that he does it with. Like, it's just this trick where he makes a quarter disappear off the kid, the back of the kid's hand. But like, you see this kid, and you know he's he's kind of a chubby kid. He's got his jeans pulled up, like, really high, mm-hmm. kind of around his, his pudgy, you know, waist. He's got his T-shirt tucked into his jeans. He's wearing, like, a members-only jacket. You know, he's, they do this in a trailer park, so the Im- Im- indication is that he lives in a trailer park. And you could tell that this is just a kid who's gotten picked on a lot, and he's very guarded when David Blaine comes up and talks to him because he's probably been beat up by dudes you know, wearing muscle t-shirts <laughs> in the past. Uh, and David Blaine's like, no, 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 I want to show you this trick. I want to show you this trick. And so he shows him this trick and the kid, you could tell he's just like guarded and he's just waiting for like something to, um, I don't know. He's just, it seems like he's just waiting for, to be the punchline. Mm-hmm. And then when he realized he isn't the punchline, all he could say is like, cool. That's like the only thing he says. <laughs> cool. And there's something about this kid that is so endearing. Like, I just want to go give this kid a hug. It'd be like, dude, it's going to be okay. Like, or I want to teach this kid how to play Dungeons and Dragons. Like, you know, and, and there's something that's very endearing about this. You know, this is like the Napoleon Dynamite thing. Um, and, you know, there's something less endearing about it when those kids are, are <laughs> there's something endearing about it when those kids are in like junior high, high school. Once they become like 25, and they're like still like you know lounging around and doing nothing. There's something about that that's less endearing, um, and yeah. maybe that's why it doesn't translate as well. 
to Bottle Rocket, but there's something endearing about that lovable loser that I really find entertaining. And then the fact that not only are they lovable losers, but they're also so earnest about this ridiculous idea that they're going to become burglars. Uh, And the way that they execute the heist mm -hmm. is... I mean, it's such the plan goes south right from the beginning. We have, yeah. you know, the it's obvious that uh, oh, what was his name? Applejack. No, Kumar, Kumar doesn't know how to crack a safe. Yeah, Kumar's like, not going to crack from the safe. start. He has no idea what's going on. Yeah, and then Applejack's heart attack, which I really I paused and backed up. I should have just let the movie keep going, but I really mm. thought they. We're trying to play off that somebody had shot him. No, afterwards because yeah. everybody's yelling, accusing everybody of Bob of shooting him. I was like, Bob's almost pointed at the crow. What the hell? Right. Yeah. For one, I'm like, oh, this must have just been a bad edit or something. And then immediately, <laughs> oh no, bum ticker. Oh yeah, bum ticker, man. Yeah, it, it's kind of you know that whole thing gets botched. There's part of me that wanted it to go off without a hitch, uh, but. Yeah, the whole thing is this kind of worst case scenario, and there's something kind of hilarious about worst case scenario well, in situations like that. Down to the smoke bomb. Uh, the right. reason I enjoyed this heist is because we watch like did Martin Scorsese do heist? I don't is know him because um, I I keep reading as I'm doing my Wes Anderson uh, reading. Martin Scorsese loves on him a bunch, and that mm-hmm. gave him a lot of kind of swing for his next movies um but you know we see the movie where the heist goes flawlessly and this is how i imagine heist actually play out (laughs) you know nine (laughs) times out of ten yeah people think oh i've got my watch so beep we're good like this is gonna be seamless and then your smoke grenades no good and then it chokes like you're choking on the smoke and then it sets off the fire the smoke detectors and (laughs) It's yeah, it's enjoyable to see the reality seep in at the edges of this movie. Well, and that's what it is. That's what comedy is, right? Comedy is a setup and then an unexpected response. Like that's what a joke is. Yeah, um, and Wes Anderson's the master of setup to the point yeah. where he's showing us a notebook of plans, and he doesn't have to show the characters, mm-hmm. you know, in their earnestness. The notebook their gestures with their hand and their voices enough to yeah. convey that that element which i yeah. i love like i think the way that he can frame that he frames shots the things that he chooses to highlight uh you know we love don fincher for the way that he does the morning routine as mm-hmm. a way to introduce us to a character and yep. wes anderson hit the way that he frames the items with which characters interact really tell you a lot. And I think he goes from, you know, he's mod, he's, it's like he knew going into the film, what he wanted. Yeah. And I, he did the shot and they, they were good. Like they were better than most. Absolutely. Uh, but then the next movie, he just, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's getting his feet wet on this one. This is his first time presumably working with a professional cinematographer. Um, and yeah, and you see little glimpses of it. Like when they are burglarizing the, the Anthony's mother's house, there's ways that the drawers are pulled out and we see what's in the drawer. 
there's just subtle things that you could see in the future he's going to really leverage these. Um, and yeah, I, I found it really, really enjoyable. Uh, the thing we haven't talked about yet at all, though, is like the hotel. The whole oh, hotel interlude. <laughs> um, and... That's the thing about this movie that even though it's weird, like Anthony is weird in this. He's super mm-hmm. weird. I mean, he's basically leaning on the the two rules of um picking up ladies, which rule 1 is be attractive and rule 2 is don't be unattractive <laughs> because this guy is would be so creepy in any other context. I mean, yeah. you can't follow a hotel maid into a room that she's cleaning and like like that's just creepy on the face of it (laughs) but you know this you know this is young dashing luke wilson doing this so it's not perceived as creepy um but it is kind of creepy but then the relate as the relationship goes on it becomes a little bit more endearing and then i think when he does the phone call and he calls around to everybody uh you know we get introduced to rocky at the hotel, and Rocky's mm-hmm. a very endearing character as being the translator between these two um, estranged lovers. Uh, you know, it, it when he does that phone call, and you know, he says, "You know, I heard that you love me," and she's like, "I do, I love you." There, I, that put a smile on my face. That was a romantic moment to me, and mm-hmm. I I liked that uh, romantic interlude in the middle of this movie. Like, this is a movie about a bunch of goofballs doing a heist, and in the middle of it, there's like a sincere romance. Which I thought was very cool. I was really happy at the end when they're visiting Owen Wilson and he's talking about Inez coming to see him and Mm -hmm. bringing him a treat. And it was for how uh, distracted these characters seem in life Mm -hmm. and how, you know, kind of aimless. It was the one thing that seemed to give Luke Wilson honest motivation. Right. When after he meets Inez, you know, he has a purpose and it's always just to kind of hang out with her, which is, I mean, that's kind of the definition of a great romance. It's somebody you want to hang out with all the time. Otherwise, what are you doing? And, you know, it was, there was a character growth there, I think, because, um, Anthony, you know, he meets Inez and while his, this is might be just an impulsive thing. He seems to be very, you know, enraptured by her. Um, when he gets back from there, when he gets back from the hotel and gets back to his hometown, that's when he becomes gets on that regimen and keeps himself really busy and gets three jobs and becomes super productive. Uh, and then gets roped into the final heist. But in the heist. I love that when he's on the walkie-talkies with Bob and he's like, I don't really want to do this heist. And Bob's like, I don't want to do it either, man. (laughs) And I just, I love that. Like, I love that there's this realization, you know, and sometimes you have to have that realization. Sometimes you have to go back to that well to realize that you've outgrown it. Um, Yeah. You know, that happens a lot. You know, there's something about... It happened to me this year when I went to PAX. I was like, I went to PAX on the last day of PAX, and I was there all by myself because none of my friends could make it on Monday. And I'm just kind of walking around the con, and I was like, dude, I would be so into this if I were like 20, but I'm <laughs> 31, and I think I'm going to go home and hang out with my wife. Yeah, like four, you know, four days at at 30 is just yeah. 
It's not this, and it's weird because I, mm-hmm. you know, I've been unpacking thing still as I go along, and like I came across super old photos of us in like high school at uh-huh. uh, Six Flags. Yep, and we were bonkers. We didn't even sleep then, and now <laughs> every like even when we go hang out, it's like all right, it's midnight. It's time to go to sleep. Yeah, it's time to go to sleep. But hey, dude, we still went to King's Island and rode roller coasters. Oh my god, so, it was so was much fun. But that's the oh. thing. Sometimes you got to go back. To, it's that. It's that idea. You can never go home again. It's that idea that sometimes you got to go back to realize that maybe you've outgrown it and maybe it's time to move on. And so we do see that growth. And at the end of the heist, when Anthony's saying, "I got, I'll go back and get Applejack," and and you know. Um, Owen Wilson's character saying, "You know what'll happen if you do that," and he's like, "Yeah, I know." And he's and Owen Wilson gives him the out and says, "No, dude, you go live your life. I'll go do that." And in the end, they both end up happy, which is weird because going to prison <laughs> makes him happy. Uh, this is Wes Anderson prison, so it's yeah, you know, you're make you're just making things with your hands, mm-hmm. a lot of craft time, a lot of craft time. <laughs> you write, you drew, you drop your escape plan in your notebook. Mm-hmm. A lot of stick figures, and also apparently you could, your friends could just show up with burgers and go to the yard and eat them with you. I'm like, yeah. that doesn't happen in prison. That's not a prison. <laughs> That's not a prison thing. I'm pretty sure you can't do that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a bad idea. Because yeah. some other dudes on the yard might walk up and want a burger, and then you're in trouble. <laughs> Did your friends bring enough for the rest of the prison <laughs> exactly uh, uh one thing you know we one thing when um we were going through the tarantino run we we really talked about music a lot and i thought um, the use of music in this movie was also really interesting yep uh because while there is some diegetic music in this um Just the one little. thing one thing about this movie is that the music always if there were lyrics in the in the songs they always directly pertain to what was happening in the scene yes it was there was always a very literal poetic translation of the emotions that were being carried out on screen which i thought was cool uh it's it's a similar like while tarantino used music f- to kind of set the scene and use it as almost a set piece to create a mood uh in this film, at least, and I'll be looking for it moving forward, Wes Anderson was using music directly to convey emotion in a scene. Directly, like, a character motivation or or a character emotion in the scene. And while it was a little on the nose in this, uh, I thought it was... A, I appreciate it because it was kind of similar to what Tarantino did, but it was also its own fresh take. Yeah, he's got... Wes Anderson has a really... has really good taste in music, and mm-hmm. it's... Typically, Tarantino felt like he he tip, he would pull songs I hadn't heard before, but were fitting and kind of of yeah. a time. Wes Anderson has a really just a good catalog of popular songs that were popular then, and you know them from the radio. But his application of them is always really great and always feeds the mood of the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tends to. I'm curious to see if he tends to use it as. Almost as it's not quite interlude, but he uses it for like action sequences. So nobody is talking when the music is playing, and yeah. even at the time where it's the the diegetic music, Inez turns the music off to converse. Um, right, but 
you know, the re- when they're raiding the house, you know, it kicks in as they go in the door and then it comes away as they're as they're walking away from the from the job. Yeah, it's it's definitely it the music almost becomes its own character at that point, which I thought was cool. I liked his use of music in this thing. Um there were also some laugh out loud moments. Like I I laughed out loud at this movie multiple times. But there were things that you didn't like. Like I, when he, when he pulls up on that scooter, I thought that was just hilarious. Like he comes in and does that so- side break on the scooter. And yeah. it's just like the most ridiculous scooter. There were things that I really thought the one that really got me, I don't know why, but I've got it here written real big, is when they're robbing the bookstore. Yeah. And they're like, Who else is here? That Lawrence, he's in literature. <laughs> and Luke Wilson, when he finally rounds a corner and goes, Lawrence, aren't you supposed to be in literature? And then the camera cuts, travel yeah. section cuts back. It was so unnecessary, but so humorous <laughs> that you know they have this plan and they got to stick yeah. to the plan and that even bleeds into the you know the directions given by the people you know everybody's understood to be honest yeah. until proven otherwise in a weird way yeah no that's what i love about this movie because everybody is honest i mean even when these guys are robbing the bookstore and they got these people at gunpoint and they're being complete assholes they are like Talking, there's like, oh, do you have a bigger bag? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I love it when he, when they, the, the manager of the bookstore. I can't remember his exact words, but he basically looks at him and says, like, don't talk that way to me, you little twerp. <laughs> and then after that, he's like super polite to him. Yeah, please, sir. One yeah. thing, the one of the lines they cut from the short mm-hmm. in the movie was what the haul was from the bookstore. Yeah, because wasn't it like seventy eight bucks or was it like a hundred? It, it was like it was one hundred eighty four dollars, I think, That's in the right. short. Yeah. But in in the movie, it's more than that because they had like five hundred. Oh, left that's that right. He gives it to Inez, and that was yeah. Five, yeah. I I preferred it in the short. I preferred that they were just that <laughs> stupid. That yeah, and it made more sense for me. That Dignan cares about doing the job, not necessarily mm-hmm. the reward, like the money, right? doesn't seem to matter so much as the thrill of the experience <laughs> well and this idea that you have to build up a reputation of burglary like he's got a, he's like he's building up his resume of burglary so that he could do this big job for his former landscaping boss that on itself is like a ridiculously funny concept turns like, out when you have a landscaping front you just have to do some landscaping i just yeah <laughs> I love that. And then I love it when uh, when Bob's older brother is like bemoaning him. He's like, this guy used to cut our lawn. And then he's like, I didn't just mow the lawn. I landscaped. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a lot more to it than just mowing the lawn and trimming the hedges. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing that I love about this. And I will look, at, look for this moving forward in Wes Anderson's uh, films is that his humor is derived from this unbridled sincerity where people say exactly what they're feeling even in very vulnerable moments uh there's the great scene in that same scene when bob's older brother you know he's done mocking um owen wilson's character and drives away and luke wilson is trying to console him a little bit and he's like he's like i think your jumpsuit looks cool and he's like look what he's wearing and Owen Wilson looks, he, he like kind of says under his breath, he's like, yeah, it's pretty cool. Like <laughs> the misinterpreted, the misinterpreted thing. And you know, the fact that they're 
doing a burglary, but they're all wearing bright yellow jumpsuits. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like they're almost already dressed for prison. Um, that there's was a, there's a scene in the, in the, the forums brought that up by the way uh-huh. that uh, oh D uh, uh-huh. the there was a a review once that said Wes Anderson is a man who understands the hilarity of uniforms. Yeah, and that's totally. something that will reoccur. Over and over and over yeah. and over. Steve Zissou's like completely about that. The whole team. <laughs> yeah, there's this. There's a great scene in here when it's the next day after uh, Anthony's had his wonderful s- in- introductory soiree with Inez, and he's waiting for her to get to work the next day, but he's given her his watch, and so he's call. He calls like housekeeping, and he says, "Hey, is Inez there yet?" And they're and they're like no, and he's like, but I thought she was supposed to get in at nine today. And then you could tell on the other end of the phone, they're like, yeah, it's not nine o'clock yet. And he just says, uh, he says, uh, you know, I I don't know what time it is. I gave her my watch. Like th- these small things that I completely butcher, but when they're done s- with sincerity with good actors, there's a there's a humor to them because they are so sincere. Um, and they're it's cute. I guess that's the thing about the Wes Anderson movies. Like, they're cute, they're kind of twee, but they're done with this unbridled sincerity that I really enjoy. So that was Bottle Rocket. Uh, next week, what do we got? We got Rushmore next week, I believe. Yeah. All right. Jason Schwartzman in the mix. Well, Schwartzman action. Uh, and Bill Murray. And Bill Murray. And Bill Murray. Uh, so we got that coming up next week. We want to hear your take. So uh, email us, directpodcast at gmail.com. Or go to the forums, forums.baldmove.com, and let your voice be heard there. We'd love to read it on the show. And until next week, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.